Welcome to the exam room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian of 33 Charts. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Brennan Spiegel of Cedar sinai Medical Center and author of VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. This was a great conversation. I loved it. We cover the power and the promise of immersion therapeutics, the coming age of the virtualist, and yeah, that's a thing, as well as virtual reality's potential limitations in healthcare. And as you'll hear, virtual reality has the capacity to bridge the divide between brain and body, and Dr. Spiegel tells us exactly how this is being done. Check out the episode, read the book, and I hope you enjoy. Dr. Spiegel, welcome to the exam room. Thanks for having me. Hey, and congratulations on publishing uh, this amazing new book. Um, do you call it VRX? Is it VRX? Yeah, that's right. Thanks. So I'll, I'll tell you, I love this book, and anyone's listening, it's... Um, I've kind of come at this from the perspective of someone who thinks a lot about technology and how it changes us. And I've read a fair amount about VR, but never really fully understood the background and the potential of its use. And so this book does a brilliant job of describing the technology, the mind-body, you know, introduction to mind-body medicine, and even curating some of the research. So I loved it. Appreciate that. So let's kind of start with the basics. For someone who doesn't know, what is virtual reality when we talk about just VR in general before medicine even? Yeah. So, you know, VR has been around for, for decades. A lot of it began with, you know, the military um, for flight simulation. And, you know, the whole idea is in VR, you can place yourself in some kind of headset, um, stereoscopic, so, that, so there's one uh, screen per eye. And it can recreate a three-dimensional view of some other world. And the key is as you move your head around, the scene moves with you. Mm -hmm. And so when it works, it makes your brain feel as if you're in this new world. Now, technically, VR means you can interact with the environment as opposed to just a 360-degree video. Okay. From my standpoint, those distinctions aren't as important. But the idea is it can sort of hijack your brain, uh, to use sort of a stark term, into thinking it's somewhere or even somebody else. So the thing that's kind of struck me was uh, the the kind of the, the corollary with the psychedelic experience. Uh, the the book, one of the my favorite books from last year, was Michael Pollan's uh, "How to Change Your Mind," and um, I guess VR has the ability to promote this uh, cognitive flow that that mimics psychedelics, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite books too. Very influenced by that book. And, you know, in that book, How to Change Your Mind, uh, Pollan talks about how psychedelics have this ability to inhibit uh, a brain network. It's called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. And basically what this network does, it's sort of like the source of our inner voice. You know, we all have this inner voice mm -hmm. and you can recognize it. Um, and sometimes it's sort of intrusive and blabbering and going on and on and ruminating and strategizing. And you want it to be quiet. Um, and it's not always quiet. And psychedelics will quiet that voice and, and, and the, in the process make you feel almost as if you died, like a, an ego death. Mm -hmm. It's called ego dissolution. Um, and people have these trips where they feel like they're one with the world around them. So, you know, there's this idea of a cyberdelic, which virtual reality is, it's a term that's been used for virtual reality for some time, that it too can inhibit the default mode network if it's used in the right way. And in the book, I talk about some of the research around that, uh, where, in fact, VR has been compared head-to-head -head with psilocybin, which is the active mm -hmm. ingredient in magic mushrooms. 
and found to be somewhat similar. It's not quite as powerful necessarily as a pharmacologic, but as a digiceutical, it definitely has some effects. Yeah, my wife was taken aback uh, after reading Michael Pollan's book that I wanted to try psilocybin. And- <laughs> so this may be the alternative that's uh, palatable for her. Yeah, right. So what about the inflection point that led to the adoption of VR now? Um, why weren't we having this conversation in general a decade ago? Yeah, I mean, you know, long before I had even heard of virtual reality as a Western trained physician, you know, I'm a gastroenterologist. I don't do, you know, a whole lot of mind body medicine, maybe some. Um, there have been researchers in psychology labs around the world using VR for decades and decades. You know, people like Walter Greenleaf or Jeremy Balenson and Skip Rizzo and many others. And, you know, I think the difference now is we haven't had access to, you know, uh, inexpensive, uh, portable, yet high quality headsets that we can also clean and reuse mm-hmm. um, in the front lines of healthcare. And I think that's been the big difference. So if we talk about therapeutics, um, you use the term immersive therapeutics. Is immersive therapeutics, are we always talking about VR when we talk about immersive therapeutics? Yeah, I think that it's, I use that term to be more inclusive um, because you think about it, you know, a lot of people when they think of VR, they think of just the visual experience, Mm -hmm. but there are other components to an immersive therapeutic. For example, sound. Um, You know, there's three-dimensional sound. There's, of course, we know about music therapy, which is a form of a an immersive therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to be so narrow. And plus, there's other forms of, of uh, mixed reality, uh, augmented reality, for example. Uh, we know about the HoloLens that Microsoft has been developing, the new HoloLens 2, which is not technically virtual reality, but has clear-cut potential in healthcare. Um, so immersive therapeutics is sort of capturing that broader notion um, and, you know, it's sort of a, an informal term that I, that I use throughout the book. I think it's a great term and it captures, uh, sometimes when we use these, we, we adopt these terms like virtual reality people, it comes with baggage, right? Like we think of gaming and we think of kids on skateboards and things like that. So right, right. I think it First makes sense. Games. Yeah. It makes it more palatable, I think, to a, a serious audience, if you want to call the academic community or whatever. So where are the, I guess in the book you go through so many cases of where VR can impact things from acute pain to chronic pain to uh, opioid use. Uh, and I will add that all of this in the book is is so carefully curated, all the research behind it. It's, it's wonderful. Where do you see sort of the big uh, opportunities with VR in medicine? Yeah. And the first thing I'd say is, so the uninitiated listening to this or maybe haven't read the book, they might think, wow, it sounds like this is some kind of magic wand. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds too good to be true. VR seems like it can cure everything. It sounds a little bit like snake oil. And the first thing I'd say is as a doctor, uh, I don't want anyone to come away with that, that impression. You know, I'm not using VR instead of medicines, let's say. Yeah. But it can augment the way we do medicine. Uh, we know that modern medicine has limitations. And we know that mind-body medicine, although it has sort of a, a new agey kind of sound to it, has some real neuroscience behind it. And I try to break down some of that in the book. So yeah, VR definitely has, to me, its biggest opportunity in medicine is to kind of reintroduce physicians and patients to these age-old, this age-old wisdom that the brain does have some governance over the body. And you know, pain is sort of the classic example where Buddha said, you know, that pain you may not be able to avoid, 
but um, suffering is potentially optional. And we have this ability to control the way our brain experiences the world around us, the way we're treated by other people, and you know, the way the world within us, uh, the way our body feels. And so really that's the notion behind VR is it can be used in a few different specific ways that I go over in the book to modify our perception of the world around us and the world within us in a way that hopefully is therapeutic and positive, not, not negative or, or scary or addictive or any of those things. Yeah, what's your favorite app? If you look at applications of VR that people are using that you've read about and wrote in the book, what's, your, what's the top one you would tell listeners or what excites you the most? Yeah, well, I'll tell you the one that I, I mean, there's so many, but I personally use uh, one called Trip, right. uh, T-R-I-P-P. I have, not, I have no relationship to the company or anything. But um, it's available through the Oculus Store. So that's one reason I like it is anyone can download it to a variety of different headsets, uh, including the Oculus headsets. And it goes back to our earlier discussion about these sort of cyberdelic trips. So that's why it's called Trip. It's designed to simulate a variety of different kind of fantastical worlds. And what's really cool is you can personalize it so that your family or friends or any photographs you upload can be introduced into these bizarre but beautiful worlds. And it takes advantage of beautiful sound and binaural beats uh, in the ears to entrain the brain into certain brain waves that are associated with flow. So I really like that one, but there, there's a lot of others as well. I uh, got a little emotional when you were talking about treatment of schizophrenia and dementia in one of the chapters, and you talk about reminiscent therapy. I uh, lost my mom to dementia, and I was thinking about the experience of one of the patients in the book who was able to go back and, I think, look at their house that they lived in or go back in time. And I can just imagine what that would have been like for my mom had that sort of technology been available. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that passage from the book, and it seems to have touched a nerve with some people, which I really mm-hmm. am gratified to hear that you also, you know, reflected on that. You know, yeah, that, that's a story of uh, Mary Ann, um, who has dementia and was brought back to her, ch- to her uh, home that she shared with her husband many years ago using um, Google Maps and a stereoscopic three-dimensional view of her house. So she felt as if she were standing there. Oh. And she really like was trying to square the reality that she was in a nursing home, but at the same time standing in her home. Wow. And um, the reaction, which I, which I capture in the book, is really priceless. It's amazing. And you can see how coherent and thoughtful she becomes mm-hmm. about this because she's you know, reminiscing about these very vivid memories. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was powerful. There's a lot of powerful elements to this book uh, because you weave in uh, lots and lots of actual stories and, and examples of how this has touched people and moved them, and 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 it allowed me to really connect with what you were saying. Oh, that's great. So this isn't all rainbows and unicorns, of course. Uh, there are some downsides to VR, which you detail very nicely, and you, you you balance the book by saying we need to be cautious about certain things. What are those downsides? How would you characterize them? Yeah, absolutely. I have a chapter dedicated to that because, as you said, I don't want to make it seem as if this is some magic wand. Um, mm-hmm. But just like any therapy that has um, benefits, um, any active therapy, there are potential risks. And that's mm-hmm. no different than you know any medicine that we use. So in a way, it sort of speaks to the, the fact that this does do something to the mind, that there are side effects. Um, the most common 
side effect, which I touch on is um, what's called cyber sickness or simulator sickness, essentially motion sickness. And this used to be a bigger problem. And this has to do with sort of the technical features of the headset and how quickly, you know, the frame rate is updated and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But we are very, very um, carefully balanced. Our our inner ear is uh, keeping track of our motion in space and our eyes are keeping track of that. And if there's any disconnect between the eyes and the ears, the inner ear, it can throw us off. And if you've ever had vertigo, you know how just difficult and disabling that can be. So some people are particularly sensitive, and I happen to be one of them, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, can get a little thrown off with um, VR. And, you know, about 10% of people get a little dizzy. And, you know, that usually goes away as soon as you take the headset off. Uh, some people actually can get pretty tired and, like, need to go to bed because they're so knocked out by it. So uh, that's something to be aware of. And we try to use very stable horizons. Don't pe- don't put people on roller coasters and stuff like that. We're not using it for gaming. So we don't see it all that often. But, you know, the sort of deeper risk is that I talk about an example in the book of, of where I triggered a panic attack mm-hmm. in a young woman who has a history of uh, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. The bear, the bear and, game, right? Or the bear yeah, game. Yeah, the bear game, right. right. Yeah. And, and so I tell the story of how she had a panic attack while playing this game in VR designed to help with pain, mm. where you throw these little balls at these teddy bears. It's sort of a silly game that's just a distraction. And she starts crying. She takes the headset off and throws it across the room. And she had a panic attack. And after you know we got through that, she explained that you know, she does not want to be an aggressor ever. And she felt like she was the aggressor and she was hurting those bears and it brought back these painful memories. And, you know, I will never know exactly what was happening in her brain because that, in order to know that, you have to understand consciousness. But something happened that dug deep into, you know, her brainstem and pulled up these, mm-hmm. these visions. And, and what was amazing, though, is she wanted to use VR again. And so the next time we used it, she was on a stage in a Cirque du Soleil performance. Right. And she happens to be an actress. And she said that gives her power. That right. gives her a feeling of confidence. And she started crying again, but this time tears of joy. Right. So, yeah, those are just a couple examples of the, the dark side. So you follow, then you kind of follow on and, and get very prescriptive when you talk about VR and medicine. You talk about precision. And um, it was interesting because this reminded me, just as a gastroenterologist about the discussion we have with probiotics with primary care docs and patients that we got to pick the right probiotic for the right disease. And so it reminded me a lot of that, but you go into how do we choose um, the right VR experience for the right patient? And you have some, some criteria or trifecta that you talk about. Yeah, that's right. And it gets a little bit technical and we've written some papers about this for those that really, you know, are interested in developing VR experiences in healthcare. And, you know, the overarching concept is this is, you know, we're talking about a digiceutical here. We're not talking about, you know, gaming entertainment. Mm -hmm. So especially if, you know, a developer wants to go to the FDA and get clearance for their software, which more and more companies are doing, we think it's important that they go through certain, you know, fairly proscriptive steps. And we've laid these out and we talk about three phases of trials, just like FDA has phase one, two, and three. We describe VR1, VR2, and VR3 trials. And without going into all the details, in short, it, it always starts with the end users, with the patients who are going to use this thing. We need to start by understanding their needs, their preferences, 
What do they experience? Like try to really empathize with the patient. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do any good to make a, um, a VR experience that no one wants to use. Uh, so I talk about, you know, bad VR experiences that I've had and good ones. And what's the difference? And how do the developers take time to really listen to patients? And, and then as it progresses through from VR 1 to 2 and 3, it becomes increasingly more, you know, objective in terms of testing it, you know, in a controlled trial and measuring clinical outcomes, not just sort of guessing or hoping it's going to work, but actually measuring whether it works. So, yeah, I have a chapter around kind of how to do that so that we can have a VR pharmacy. And that's right. the title of the book is VRX. If VR is a treatment, then, you know, we need a VR pharmacy. And so what do the skeptics uh, say? If, 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 if we were on a stage having a debate, what would be the argument, um, you know, against this placebo effect, anecdotes? Mm -hmm. What would they say? Yeah, I mean, the good news is I haven't run into a wall of skepticism. I think the biggest concern people have is, um, you know, are, are we overselling this and making it seem like, as I said before, some kind of magic, you know, wand? Um, is there a risk of addiction? Are people, is this just another screen mm. that, you know, especially if we talk about kids, and I talk about that briefly in the book, you know, people are going to get addicted to this stuff. Uh, and is this just sort of, um, you know, distraction, you know, distracting us from life's, you know, bad things. And, you know, when you take the headset off, you just go right back to those bad things and nothing happened. And I think those are some of the, you know, critiques. And there's some validity, you know, kernel of truth to all of those things. Uh, we could talk about them here if you'd like. But in general, I think there's, you know, good answers to all of those. In particular, the last one, you know, yeah, sometimes you take the headset off and people are right back where they were. But when we do it right, People are learning about themselves in, in, a, in, a, in a new and different way. And we don't want people to live in VR forever. It would be a success to me if someone only needs VR for once right. and that's enough uh, or over a course of a few weeks and they learn something and take it off. And we don't find people want to live in VR very long. Like they ended up feeling kind of sick and dis, you know, disjointed anyway. Wasn't there a guy, a guy who wouldn't take it off or something? He was using excessive amounts uh, that you cite. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. There, we do monitor, at least in our research trials, kind of amount of time people are in the headset. And we have not seen signs of abuse. But there was one guy I talk about who was like using this all the time. <laughs> and we're like, wow, maybe we need to check out what's going on. And and. It turns out he's, he had been, he had very severe chronic pain and had been using opioids. And he explained that he was staying off the opioids by swimming with dolphins every day in VR. And he just loved it. And he said that was legit then. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, you know what, if that's like, I'll take that clinical trade off. If that's, if that's the case, if he's able to stay off uh, opioids by swimming with dolphins. In terms of caveats, you, you, uh, do cover pediatrics really nicely and uh, back it up with some of the experts at Boston Children's and other places. And uh, tell us about how it might be different in kids than in adults. Yeah. So, you know, with kids, you got to think about exactly how old they are because, you know, the brain is developing. And uh, one of the concerns that Jeremy Balenson at Stanford has looked at is whether false memories can be introduced. And by false memory, I mean, like you or me, if we're in a VR experience, we, it might feel real at the time, but afterwards we know it wasn't real. Mm -hmm. Whereas a child might literally think that that was a real thing. Um, now, that's not necessarily so bad if a child's going through a spinal tap, let's say, yep. um, and you know, remembers swimming with dolphins or whales or whatever and not, doesn't remember getting 
a spinal tap. Um, so I think the argument isn't you know, necessarily a bad one, but at the same time, we have to be very thoughtful about that. So I talk a bit about that and interview some experts around that. And usually when, when kids are getting to be around 10 years old or thereabouts, um, they have a better sense of reality. But yeah, there's some caveats for sure. It's not quite the same, um, but there's still a lot of pediatric literature for some incredible, incredible examples. I touch on a few of them in the book. Tell us about the uh, live demo that you did where uh, the child became incontinent. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Should have started with I hate to drag that, but I just thought, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, it really taught me a lot. I was at uh, science fair <laughs> at my kid's school. Yeah. yeah it's a few years ago now. And, and we were doing this um, ledge jumper where you go up the side of a building and you jump off. And, you know, that could be scary, but it's really kind of exhilarating and fun. And so I w- we had a whole bunch of kids who wanted to do it. And I wanted to make sure they were old enough and make sure their parents were okay <laughs> with it. And I was trying to do everything I could to make yeah. sure. You know, I had this other VR experience where you would hang out with like, you know, throwing te- balls at teddy bears and stuff. But no, everyone wanted to jump off the building. And I- there were like 50 kids in a row that just thought it was the best thing in the world. I started with my own son first to make sure he didn't freak out. Mm-hmm. And they thought it was great. They loved it. Until this one kid is going up the side and he's shaking. I said, hey, buddy, you know. Um, you look a little nervous. He's like, no, 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 I want to do this. And I said, no, no, you know what? Why don't we just, why don't we cut it off right here? Like, like he's going to go for that. And it felt like there was a stadium of spectators looking at this poor kid when all of a sudden I see this sort of aqueous, you know, this sort of like watery streak go down his khaki pants. And it was like, it made a beeline around his knee straight down oh, to no. the top. And then a pool of urine comes, you know, oh shoot, I felt terrible. I wanted to disappear. Turned out he was okay. But he was in the headset. He didn't know, so yeah. he was fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He had no idea. No, I, I worry that he, he he's like damaged forever, but it turns out he was okay. I talked to him and the parents later. When the cool doctor dad does the wrong thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, one of the things, uh, Brennan, we talk about with, with technology is how it separates us and divorces us from patients. And you get into this uh, realm of therapy training um, you even quote one of my favorite authors, Jaron Lanier, who, who coined VR and, um, you know, he says that VR is a technology that highlights the existence of your subjective experience. And this can bring us closer in terms of empathy. You go into that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, that quote is a powerful one. And I, I include that actually very early in the book because there's this notion, um, uh, it's Chris Milk who came up with this term empathy machine. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's another term for VR um, is it's an empathy machine because it puts us in the shoes of another and it makes us feel, if only temporarily, like we are somebody else. And that can allow doctors to empathize with their patients um, and it can even allow patients to empathize with themselves. Uh, and so I go through examples of that um, and, you know, I talk about one example where I went to the University of Barcelona and was put into a VR simulation where I became a woman. And I look in the mirror and I see myself and I am a woman. And as I move around, this image in the mirror moves around. And then I look and I'm in an apartment and this man comes in. He starts screaming at me and yelling at me and throwing things at me. And he gets right up in my face. And I realize like I'm in a domestic violence scenario and I'm the victim. And I can't pretend to know what that's like. But I have that was crazy. That was when I read that, I was blown away. I was like, what was that like? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was very visceral. And that's the key is yeah. I can read about 
you know, domestic violence in a textbook or see an ICD-10 code flash across the you know, electronic health record that shows one of my patients has, un- has experienced this. But that doesn't give me the emotional experience of it. And mm-hmm. now whenever I see a patient who's had this history, I flash back to that simulation. And, you know, again, I can't know what it's really like, but at least I've simulated it in a very visceral way. And it gives me a different level of empathy. I mean, of course I empathize or at least sympathize. And this is almost a form of empathy without overstating it because I don't want to pretend to know mm-hmm. what it's like. But, but it was a very powerful experience. And what's amazing is those researchers have used this with perpetrators of domestic violence in a kind of clockwork wow. orangey sort of way in Spain. And they work with authorities to use the, and rehabilitate um, domestic violence perpetrators using this program and have shown that it actually changes um, some of their implicit perspectives. And they've objectively demonstrated that. Let's talk a little bit about the future of all this uh, and the future of immersive therapy. You quote uh, Skip Rizzo from USC, and he says he hopes that VR headsets will become kind of like toasters and every home will have one. Is that where we're headed? Where if we just talk about clinically, I mean, is this coming to a hospital near me? Yeah, and the last thing in that quote he says is, like a toaster, you may not need it every day, but it's there if if you need it. So the idea is this will be a new tool that, you know, you don't necessarily use every day of your life, um, but that is available to you to augment other treatments, other therapies you're getting. And yeah, we're starting to see this integrated within healthcare delivery more and more. Uh, There's over 200 hospitals in the U.S. alone using VR. It's hard to even keep track now because some are using it in a really broad way, others very narrow way, Um, but it's definitely out there. Um, We're starting to see more therapists using it for all sorts of conditions, anxiety, depression, phobia, PTSD. And, you know, I think we're just, it's really a matter at this point, we don't need more science. We have over 5,000 studies. It's really kind of more trivial, mundane things like who's going to staff this? Who's going to pay for this? How are we going to clean these headsets and distribute these headsets? Mm -hmm. You know, at Cedars-Sinai, we've been using this for several years now in over 3,000 patients, uh, but it's been more in a research capacity. So now we're uh, looking to develop a real proper clinic where we can you know, refer patients for care, not just for a research study. And I think that's where we need to start moving now is having the virtualist, that's the term I kind of use in the book, uh, who is this trained clinician who can administer these therapies in partnership with, uh, with doctors and traditional therapies. Let me unpack that just a little bit uh, because, yeah, you do talk about virtualists. And, and we, we went through this a few years ago after a JAMA editorial talked about virtualists in telemedicine, and the suggestion was there are going to be some doctors who tel- do telemedicine and others who don't. I was of the opinion that all doctors would ultimately you you know learn how to use telehealth. Do you think this is different, that it really does require special training, or do you think that this will be part of what we do in medicine, part of our, you know, our toolkit? Yeah, I mean, you think about all the different uses, like it can be, we haven't talked about, for example, stroke rehabilitation. I mean, you know, uh, virtual mirror therapy, like that's mm-hmm. totally different than, you know, using it for PTSD or phobia. So it, it might be that there's one clinician who does it for everything. And that's sort of the vision I, I paint, I guess, a uh, picture I paint at the end of the book. Or it might be that each subspecialty has a certain number of clinicians or doctors who decide to t- take up this almost like a procedure that they learn. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think about radiation oncology, for example. 
you know, that, that specialty didn't exist until this tool, you know, radiation, therapeutic radiation became available. And then we realized, oh, we need, you know, a specialty totally devoted to this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this is the same or not, but, you know, I, I think it's going to evolve and it may end up being uh, a little bit of both. Um, there may end up being true virtualists that that's all they do. And they work across the entire spectrum of VR opportunities. Or maybe that each specialty adopts the part that they're most interested in. I don't know yet. And as with any new technology, we never really know how these technologies are going to be used until they're put out into the public like this. And so it'll sort itself out, I'm sure. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, your journey as a, if we call you a virtualist, um, you, at the end of the book, talk about how you came out of medical school sort of in, in the analog age and you've seen all these digital tools around you. But you somehow cherry-picked virtual reality as something that you really clung on to. What was the one thing that drew you to it as opposed to some other form of digital health or digital tool? Yeah, and I talk a little bit about how a lot of these other technologies tend to draw my attention away from my patients. Ah. Whereas to me, VR is sort of drawing my attention towards the patient and towards the subjective nature of their biopsychosocial illness experience. And it, it sort of can lead to new and different discussions. Um, you know, I, I can't say that of the electronic health record where I, it averts my eyes and I, it can undermine that relationship between me and my patient. I mean, it's literally physically placed in the room in such a way that I sometimes have to turn my back uh, right. to the patient to enter data into the chart. And not that it's their equivalent technologies, but, you know, wearable biosensors, smartphone applications, these are all great. And I do a lot of work with those. But VR has sort of forced me, and I was a philosophy major, and I come into that in the book a little bit, uh-huh. but to really think about this intersection between technology, psychology, neuroscience, uh, philosophy, clinical medicine. And I've never had any other technology force that way of thinking upon me. So I think that's really what makes it so appealing as, as a clinical tool. So, Brennan, where can people find out about um, VRX, the book, and maybe the work that you're doing at Cedar sinai yeah, well, the, the book's uh, anywhere books are sold. Um, it's uh, published through Basic Books in New York and go on Amazon, go on Barnes & Noble, uh, go to the publisher. Uh, just check it out online. It's not hard to find. Um, and if you want to learn more about our work at Cedars-Sinai, uh, we have a website. It's uh, virtualmedicine.org or virtualmedicine.health. And on that site, you can watch. Uh, we have a whole library now of videos from all of our webinars and uh, previously live events, uh, some of the world's experts. We have now, boy, I mean, 40, 50, 60 different uh, talks. We have videos, we have uh, research. So there's a lot of resources there. And soon we're going to be adding, uh, very soon, a page with different companies that are offering these these treatments um, and sort of our recommendations because we get that question a lot. So you can check that out periodically for updates. Great. As I uh, suggested, uh, VR is uh, amazing. It has this uncanny ability to diminish pain, steady nerves, and boost mental health, all without drugs and uh, all those side effects. And when we use this, uh, it's used by the right people rather than the right way at the right time. VR strengthens humanity in healing like no other technology. So uh, this book is approachable and it reads like a story. And it's a, a journey of Dr. Spiegel's personal discovery in VR. And thank you for joining us. Thanks so much.